1: all right everyone welcome back to another bell curve roundup you got the the four hombres back today you got uh vance and yano uh, we missed you guys the last couple of weeks and michael's one and two welcome back guys it's can't say pretty. i missed you guys uh, i wasn't thinking
0: too much about bell curve i'll be honest but it's good wow. to be there
2: wow yeah, dude to the absolute closet where, where are you feel <laughs> <What laughs> like harry really potter weird. coming
1: to us yeah. and need uh, to get on the last train <laughs> <laughs>
2: that lighting jeez
1: cop right under the stairs yeah Yeah. truly whole new view we don't have the nice studio lighting for your not like a message anymore watch on spotify and apple not on
2: youtube yeah jack farland you have the big boy room we're we're giving up a little piece of that
0: (laughs) the The little kid's table (laughs) yeah truly all
1: right you guys want to get into it i think the it makes sense to start with the uni fee switch so for the last couple of weeks there's been um uh, I think it's the the second or maybe even third attempt to turn on the fee switch for Uniswap. This was a proposal that was put forth by Getty Hill over at GFX Labs. It had pretty broad-based support. The broad strokes of the proposal were that it there was essentially going to be a test deployment on v 3 on Polygon. So I think uh, when the proposal was written, it's about $50 million uh, in volume or something like that um, on a daily basis. but yeah, so basically it's basically sort of like a lower stakes test on Polygon and the proposal failed, unfortunately, by a relatively slim margin. So just curious what you guys what you guys think if you're surprised about the result of the vote. Um and just your high level thoughts.
2: I'm surprised we're this close, honestly. Like it, it feels like they're getting closer over time. I'm just looking at the comments on uh
0: Well if you Well Vance, if you I don't. The whole vote, I think, was structured incorrectly. And um, because if you actually yeah. look at the vote, the uni uh, fee switch is 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 gonna fail or did fail, even though there are more votes in favor of adding a fee than not adding. Mm. A fee. So if you look at it, the note <laughs> had eighteen million uni. The you know, one fifth had 17 million, and 110 had five million, and then one had sixteen k. So there, it was really twenty two million in favor of turning hmm. on the switch. Eighteen million and. In- it 18 million didn't want to turn on the fee so there should have been two separate polls here there should have been a yes or no fee switch and then if it said yes for the fee switch it should have been how big should the fee switch be so i actually think this was a the whole vote was set up incorrectly Mm -hmm. uh would be my feedback here
3: yeah and and just to add to that they said uh there's gonna be three polls the first one is the fee options for v3 and then the the second poll is the initial deployment chain and then um the the third poll is asset to be held in treasury but, you yeah, know, to your point, the first poll and there should have been four was whether or not to go forward with this. Right. And that's that's what they yeah. should have been voting on here.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is real, like it's really telling. Like, I think fee switch is getting closer. This is now what yeah. third I wouldn't say this is a failure each time this uni fee switch is coming. Um, and I think it's just like this is the most progress they've had towards towards the fee switch.
2: One of the bad takes I see is like if your protocol doesn't have fees turned on right now, it's never going to turn on fees. Um, it's I, just, I just think that's a bad take. That like this has got I, I, every single vote, the snapshot process is robust, there's the ability to re vote. It seems like the consensus is building. Like, I think about Uniswap on the path to this v switch and then what they will do with it, not like whether this is going to happen at all. That feels like not the right thing to focus on.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think one of the the reasons why, if I had to speculate, this is getting held back is I think the individual delegates at Uniswap are worried about personal liability. So one of the benefits of something like an LLC or a C Corp is sort of this uh, liability protection in between management at the company and um, the actions that the company takes. Right. So you can't be personally sued. And there was a, there was a decision, I think at a, at a court with LBRY, whatever the name of that DAO was, which implicated that actually that limited liability protection that you get in corporate America, you doesn't necessarily extend to DAOs and there can be personal liability. So you're more treated as like a general partner. Um, And I think what delegates are worried about is if a fee switch is turned on, then you need the token ends up looking a lot more security like. Than it does today if you have fees that are being streamed
3: to a DAO and then distributed in some way so, so, so ju- just to just to be careful with that that hasn't been decided yet that that is still in process but the argument is that instead of it being an llc or c corp like where you have you know llc literally stands for limited liability company right or corporation <clears throat> so that's the entire premise and structure of that legal entity in the united states The argument that is put forth is that, in fact, these DAOs are more like unincorporated partnerships, which don't incur the limited liability protections that you would have with these other legal entity structures. So, you know, it's not a said and done case and, and that, you know, decision isn't official, but it is, you know, something that people are tracking because it is a pretty robust change to how you would think about, you know, participating in DAOs.
2: also not a general rule depends on where you're based depends on what type of product you build like there's not a notion of security or non-security in in very many countries the existence of a DAO or a legal entity is different in, in very many countries as it relates to liability so I think this is like you should you should kind of view this as a startup working in you know the most punitive jurisdiction in the most probably punitive potential asset you know, type of, or I guess type of startup that's swapping assets and, and doing trading. You know, I, I think it's pretty interesting and bullish and optimistic that they're going down this path despite all of that. Um, and there's places like Texas, which I have Dow as a legal ent- entity protections, um, you know, that have, you know, the ability to hopefully facilitate this stuff. But I think this is pretty optimistic in my opinion.
1: What, what if, let's say you lay aside legal concerns. Do you guys think that this is the, the right time to turn on the fee switch for Uniswap and, you know, what would be sort of your your pro and con case for why or why not?
3: So uh, what I would say is it really depends on what the intention is for what you do with the fees that are generated. Is it, you know, just what you're effectively doing is you're trading off protocol treasury fees, which, you know, you, you kind of have a couple of options to do with once they're collected. <clears throat> but you've got the treasury that would be assuming some fee collection, and that's taking away from LPS. And that kind of give and take is really kind of the question here. Uh, meanwhile, you've got what seems to be the, the bulk of the Uniswap Labs team has moved into a direction of building a, uh, you know, as we talked about in this podcast a, a couple of times, moving in, in the direction of building a centralized wallet and service on top of the Uniswap protocol. And you know maybe there's going to be a fee element there as well. Um, so I, I think, you know, you can't just look at this as a binary yes or no, it really has to do with what is the use of the fees once they're collected, or is this going to be the only fee that's incurred within the entire value flow of Uniswap?
2: Yep. I mean, depends what you do with the fees to Michael's point. Like I don't think the DAO is just meant to accrue fees and hold on to them forever. Like these things are not meant to be banks. These things are not meant to be capital allocators in my opinion, that doesn't make any sense. so you should either have a plan to reinvest it in the growth of the protocol immediately, hopefully like in a programmatic way, or distribute it to token holders. Um, you know, like I think it's also balancing this idea that like Uniswap is finished with the reality that there's probably better, more sophisticated models of trading coming to the market. And so, like, do you eventually need those fees to fight off a challenger? Probably, but like I, I also don't think you should just accrue them. Indefinitely to the to the Dow and uh, and risk your position potentially winning the LPs that are facilitating this trading. So it's I'm, you have to balance a lot of different things, but ultimately it's really not up to them. It's up to the entirety of people who hold this token.
0: I'd be pretty. Uh, I would say that Uniswap should turn on the fee switch eventually, but I'd be pretty hardcore against turning on the fee switch right now. One is like, I guess it's like, why would you turn on the fee switch right now? You are that is a huge like. Think about turning on the fee switch in a bull market that is a huge token catalyst that you are just like wasting that big opportunity in the bear markets. That's one reason. The second is you're turning on a fee switch at like the most risky time in the history of crypto regulation. Uh, and I think the legal and tax implications of turning on the fee switch right now are massive. And it's like, why, why take that risk? Um, and then, yeah, like, like Michael and Vance were saying, like, I, I think the Dow has not been a super great allocator of capital. Um, in, in, in the past. And so it's like why, like maybe they need to show a little better, uh, show a little bit that they can allocate capital better before turning that on.
1: All right, hold on. I would push back on, sorry, both of those actually. First of all, I the legal and regulatory stuff, absolutely. But one of the advantages of a bear market is that you have cover, right? The stakes feel much higher when it's a bull market and everything is growing super fast and competition feels really fierce. This is the period of time that you have to experiment like if you don't take risks now, you're not going to do it during the bull market. So I kind of think you're just blowing it. And as this whole, you know, DAOs can't allocate capital, they've clearly done it pretty well so far. You know, capital was allocated. We got Uniswap, then we got V2, then we got V3. It's the leader in the market, you know, so
3: that, that, that wasn't the Uniswap foundation. That wasn't the Uniswap treasury. That was Uniswap labs. True. Very very different. Like, but, you know, they're they're very different entities where you've got different different governance structures, you've got different equity holders versus token holders. Like there there is a pretty large difference between what I would assume is the Uniswap Foundation. I, I don't know the full name versus Uniswap Labs Incorporated. True. Okay. So but
1: then play that out, right? So we've got these great primitives in crypto. They were for the most part, right? created by operating companies, by labs teams. So is the idea now that innovation is just going to stop and the primitives that we have exist because we have labs teams that built them and then DAOs are just going to return money from this from this point on? Or what's the sort of way forward path from
2: here? It's a good question. I think you have to assume that Uniswap Labs will be incentivized to build Like in in my mind, Uniswap Labs has built the wallet, but their monetization and, and the big outcome is still tied to the token, which is tied to the AMM. And so like their incentives are to keep that competitive. What I do agree with is you should figure out these things before they become huge problems, because there's always this scenario where, you know, either there is like a a DAO with a bunch of money or there is like the potential for a DAO to get a bunch of money and when the stakes get high you're just like fighting over these magical internet coins and like it just gets really contentious and it's generally better to do everything before it becomes a big problem or the stakes are too high so like I I like that idea Um, I just uh, yeah I don't know if the Uniswap DAO is ever built to allocate capital and and, like you know the times they have done in the past like the, the DeFi legal fund I think was a good idea but there aren't too many one-offs like that where you can just give someone a huge pile of money and and it was actually effective. I, I think it's always better to just go back to the the stakeholders of, of the DAO itself.
0: So, Mike, you would turn it you would turn it on now for one pool, test it
1: out, dabble, see how it goes. You would do it. You would do it for all of Uniswap. Yeah, I think to be honest, I think the if I I think what's tricky about this is if I was in the position of being a large stakeholder in in Uniswap, then it would be very hard for me to press the button because, yeah, I would be very worried about my own personal liability. And I just think it's the most fair thing in the world to say. And we could all sit here and say, yeah, I would totally do that. But like I've said before, I like living in the United States and I honestly don't want to leave. But that said, I do think this is the time to push experimentation. And uh, Miles, who's been on this podcast a bunch, uh, wrote a, a pretty good piece at Reverie about this. Um, you know, if you think about these, these DAOs as uh, software marketplaces, you have a demand side and a supply side, the LPs are the supply side of Uniswap. I would love to see which DAOs actually have pricing power over their supply side. I think that's a pretty good indicator if you have a commodity business or a business that actually has a moat. So from the standpoint of a pretty interested observer, I would love that. I would love it if these experiments got run now, frankly. Um. I'd just be interested to see what happened.
2: I like that. Yeah. I, mean, I remember when you segregated out the pools, like 30 basis points, 10 basis points. Like there's another, I think that was V2. That certainly like opened the aperture of like pricing power and how much leverage you actually have over TVL in your protocol and what you can charge people before they leave. I think frankly, like AMMs are this strangely captive market with a lot of stale liquidity where the LPs are the ultimate end consumer, and they seem to be pretty price insensitive. Like they get run over sometimes. They get um, different things done to them when their their uh, positions are out of range. Like I, I don't really know how to think about the Uniswap LP set. It doesn't feel like the most professional traders. That that would be my guess. They would be less sensitive to, to pricing in my mind.
1: Do you have an understanding of like the Pareto of uni v3 lps like how dispersed
2: it is and who those entities are my sense is it's there's a bunch of latent liquidity that's just kind of sitting there but there's also a lot of people who are doing like just in time of um you you know to these separate pools a lot of the flow is rebalancing flow so like you know prices move on centralized exchanges and people rebalance um i would say that's probably most of the of the flow And, and we've done some analysis and i think like i forget what it was but like 30 or 40% or maybe a little bit less than that comes from the Uniswap uh, front end. And the rest is all programmatic trading. So like people who are not clicking buy or sell. Yeah, that that data, that data might be outdated. Yeah, that, that data is very outdated. It's probably a year outdated. The sense that I get is that it's
1: actually quite concentrated and that there was a thread uh, that got put together on Twitter about this. I'll see if I can go back and find it. But I think it's about like 10 entities that provide liquidity for, you know, the majority. There's definitely like a eighty twenty rule in effect with, L, you know, liquidity provision on v 3 I'd just be very curious to see like what their motivation is for doing that. But
2: the v 3 uh, percent very different than the uni v2 customer set uni v2 is kind of what i think of when i think of DeFi, like a lot of people just throwing in cat like pool twos you know like initial bootstrapping you know pools for for tokens things like that v3 is more of like the you know latent liquidity that's just sitting there and then like the the 10 pros that are doing like just-in-time liquidity provisioning and that's
0: not because yeah. people realize that it's very very hard to make money on uni v3
2: i mean we we couldn't we couldn't do it yeah you know, and, and we worked at it for a long time. Univ2 is very profitable just because right, it's right. like easier to make money on. Mm-hmm. Univ3 is, um, yeah, I mean, you you just, you need a very low latency, very, you know, just high reliability system to trade that.
3: I, I mean, to be clear, you you can make money. You just have to have a strategy that incorporates an element that's off of V 3 And right. this could be, you know... On-chain, you know, centralized hedging. This could be, you know, using that to to farm assets. This could be, like fans are saying, a low latency system that was auto hedging uh, over time, or potentially, you know, participating in any arbitrage between centralized and decentralized exchanges. Like, there's a lot of ways of making money. It's just if you're only going to be an LP in uni V3, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to have you know a net positive effect.
2: Our, our, our style of like on-chain stuff is more doing like using very simple DeFi primitives at scale to do ideas that we're high conviction on. It's not like, uh, you know, like, let's go do MEV just-in-time liquidity provisioning on UDB3. It's like, you know, Maker Vaults and large-scale staking and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... I've got a uh, maybe this would be a just to return to that question. They were sort of asking, like, when is a project in crypto done? And um, one of the things that I struggle with a little bit when it comes to something like Uniswap is for some of these DAOs, it feels like the DAO structure of it. Flies directly in the face of the value proposition of the product in that, hey, we probably could make a better product here if we just had a company. was shipping updates here where i maybe want to transition to lido here lido is actually a very interesting project in DeFi. in for me in the sense that the decentralization of it actually is a direct value proposition of lido and the more decentralized and DAO-like like it is and the more they limit the surface area of what they do the more valuable the product is um so we can get into why that is i think it's sort of unique actually in that in that sense but Before we get into that, I would love to get your takes. Vance, I saw you had sort of a a spicy tweet about this, but basically the idea that people are getting worried about Lido again, and it has an enormous amount of I think it has more TVL than any other DeFi protocol. This standpoint, I think it's almost twice actually what maker is over 12 billion of TVL, something like that, and it's just very like very close to the middle of how Ethereum works and just there's a lot of stake that's locked up there. And so you said that people are maybe a little bit um,
2: worrying unnecessarily about this. What, what are your sort of thoughts on Lido? Yeah, I mean, what, what Lido is basically serving to people is a validator set. And right now the discussion is, is that validator set decentralized enough or not? And the reality is basically everything, you know, at the moment is permissioned validator sets. If it's Frax, if it's Rocket Pool, if it's Coinbase staking, if it's Lido, and the discussion is basically how do you broaden that and this is something that lido acknowledges this is something that they know this is basically the entire roadmap and what it's being developed towards is basically in the future probably q4 q1 and this is enabled by what they just shipped in lido v2 which is called distributed validator technology you'll go from the you know 40 50 lido validators that are validating today to clustering validators. So what I mean by that is you're going to have one, you know, institutional node operator paired with a bunch of self-stakers that can permissionlessly just use Lido as middleware to go off and stake their ETH. And so by doing this, you allow the smaller people to get in and, and validate, but you also have the backstop of, you know, if something, God forbid, were to happen, you can rely on that institutional node operator to be validating correctly and effectively save that cluster. And so, you know, The answer to all of these concerns is like we need to do a better job of decentralizing Lido, but like that's kind of already on the roadmap. And, you know, I just see that as uh, still probably not being acceptable to like, you know, other staking protocols, um, you know, certain Ethereum influencers that like Lido, you know, in providing this middleware service would still potentially have leverage over Ethereum like, I just don't think that's the right way to think about this. I, I think the right way to think about this is Lido is providing something that is critical infrastructure to the protocol. It's far better and far more aligned than miners ever were. And it's moving on a path towards not only decentralizing the validation process with DBT and having solo stakers, but you're also going to transition the governance to be steeth based as well. And what I mean by that is right now, Lido LDO is the token that effectively validates everything. In the future, you're going to have steeth have like, like a second order governance perspective over the protocol. And if there's a vote that's contentious, if there's something that they want to block, Steath holders will literally be able to go off and block a vote. And so like, what does that mean from, from a governance perspective? Well, it means that the seventh largest asset in crypto, steth, is now going to have governance over the underlying protocol of Lido, which is very aligned with Ethereum. Like if you have, you know, I think it's like, Thirteen or fourteen billion of TVL locked in the protocol today. How can you say that if all of those people have a say over at the governance of the protocol and validating is permissionless that that's not aligned with Ethereum? I just really don't understand that perspective.
1: Yeah, it 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 might be worth doing a little bit of a history lesson as well for just why Lido exists. There was initially a decision to not do something like delegated proof of stake, right? Ethereum. The Ethereum Foundation basically took this stance that what they actually didn't want was people delegating their stake to a limited set of validators that would therefore have outsized control over the protocol. Kind of just shows you that there sometimes like market forces will just take over despite whatever mechanisms you try to put in place. But the the worry after that decision was made was that the centralized exchanges would become they would allow people. Their their customers to stake. They would stake on their behalf, and therefore, the Coinbase's and the Krakens and the Binances of the world would effectively control Ethereum. So Lido is actually created to uh, obviate some of that control. So there,
3: there, or- there's a there's a bit there's a bit more nuance to that. In that um, the, the limitation specifically was that a node operator would have to have 32 ETH on the node to be able to operate and start validating the blockchain, as opposed to the delegated model where you could have, you know, basically the sinks of assets where it would be like the Coinbase node or a subset of Coinbase right. nodes that would be able to assume, you know, massive amounts of Ethereum and, and that would, you know, be a centralization risk. And so the fact that you put in this 32 ETH limit meant that you either you, you had basically two options and then Lido became a third. The two options were to self-stake, where you would be operating your own node, running your own infrastructure simultaneously to the lido conversations on twitter. i've I've read a number of threads this week around how like self-staking is still an exceedingly difficult thing to do, which is why you see a lot of attraction from centralized staking or LSDs. Um, and then the other one was uh, the beacon chain launched in november twenty November, december twenty twenty. And until April of this year, you know, two and a half years later, you had no liquidity on the assets that you chose to put up for for that staking process over two and a half years. And so that's where the advent of LSDs came about because you wanted to be able to stake and and earn and and validate the blockchain, but you also wanted to be able to have potential for liquidity in in the form of uh, a receipt token like like Steith. So I, I think you know there's a couple of elements to it, but light of coincidentally took off in that two and a half period, two and a half year period when, um, you know, self-staking or centralized staking were the only options. Um, And I I think it has to do with liquidity just as much as, you know, moving away from delegated proof of stake. Yeah. Yeah. You might be absolutely right. Could you actually,
1: either you or or Vance, could you explain why there are, you know, generally when you ask people about the the projected market structure of something like uh, LSTs, it's, if not winner take all, it's certainly winner take most, or most people don't think it's be- going to become a fragmented marketplace. Can you just explain some of the returns to scale that you get as a as an issuer of a liquid staking derivative or liquid staking token?
2: Yes. So um, it's kind of like path dependent in terms of like how we got here. But like Michael's description was right. You know, everyone wanted liquidity for staking ETH. Lido was the first one to provide that at scale. It partnered that with a smart token incentive program and Curve to keep it at peg. Sometimes it fell off. Sometimes it was stable. They just accrued a lot of rewards. As they, you know, as I mentioned, the product they are serving to people is the validators. People use the Steeth. That's a tokenized representation of a validator, effectively. Um, and they managed to get a bunch of very effective validators um, and just basically have a lot more individual nodes than anybody else. And so what that means is like, you get a higher share of the lumpier med-style fees when they happen, Um, and so like that boosts their their APR. They're also the lowest fee uh, protocol. They're at ten percent. Rockpool's at fifteen. Coinbase ETH is at twenty-five. Believe it or not. So like there, there it, there's like a lot of different things that they did well. DeFi integrations, Um, and like the DAO is just well run too. Like we we. We know a lot of people there. We trust a lot of them. Um, you know, they're 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 good people. Um, and that's kind of hard to find in crypto. So like they did a bunch of things right, basically. I, I will say just like on a on a different note, liquid staking is not actually an idea that originated within Ethereum. It originated within Cosmos. And this probably shows like how dated, you know, this this learnings are, but like this was invented by like Zachy and a lot of kind of like the the Cosmos folks at that time. Ethereum was like very anti-proof-of-stake, anti-liquid you know, liquid staking in, in a different context for a long time and eventually got convinced. So like, it's not surprising to see that this has been contentious in terms of Ethereum was a protocol designed to basically have uh, no partners. Everything would be internalized. And I think along the way, there's two things that kind of got out of the Ethereum Foundation that they wish they would have internalized. One is uh, flashbots. That would be one that I would say they probably would like to figure out a way to enshrine MEV a little bit more effectively into the protocol they're doing proposer builder separation, things are like after the fact efforts to change that. And I think Lido and you know liquid staking as a whole is probably another. You know, how would you set up self-staking and, and these other things in a way that would be more effective for Ethereum holders? People want to stake Ethereum. But um it just didn't it didn't happen that way. And, you know, I think a lot of the uh the narratives around like Lido being too concentrated are, are a little bit of the result of people just wanting to kind of wind back the clock and, and do it differently. But like that's just not how the market played out. Like I wish everyone was just like, you know, had a solar generator. In a box of granola and just like self-stake all of their ETH in the woods somewhere, but like that's just like not how this played out.
3: Well, and and just to to further the point, you know the flip side and and the the second largest staker, if not the largest, I think from a total percentage of stake, is Coinbase. And the way that Coinbase works is you put your ETH into a staking address or a staking vault, and you have to have uh, um, increments of thirty-two ETH. And the only difference between delegated proof of stake and and you know what they're doing is effectively their software, their system separates out each validator into 32 ETH, and then they manage the keys, they manage the controls, and they distribute your ETH, you know, in in 32 uh, um, 32 ETH increments to your collective you know staking vault, staking address, um, and you know that's how the staking process works with Coinbase. And so, you know, there's it's still a very centralized process. On the flip side, and you're putting a lot of trust in the software and systems of Coinbase, which, you know, it, it's something that we we trust as well. But you know, there there is a better solution to that, I would say, which is liquid staking. And you know, we can debate you know the the relative market share of Lido versus others. And and I do actually think it's not going to be a winner take all market. I think there's going to be you know, different flavors of staking that have different token models, different kind of growth strategies and therefore use cases. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, what we're talking about here shouldn't be how big is Lido. It's, you know, how big is Lido or how big is liquid staking versus centralized staking? Michael, yeah. why don't you think it's a winner-take-all market? Or winner take Because I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of different, I mean, we're already seeing, like, Steeth is very different from some of the token models that are, are more akin to wrap Steath. Which means that you have the composability elements um, much easier assumed when, when used in DeFi. You're also starting to look at some of the different token incentive models and growth strategies of these protocols, um, which will drive adoption. I, I would say you know there's just going to be novel ways of distributing value back to token holders for some of these ecosystems that are willing to do it um, that may boost liquidity and interest and, and um, yeah more so or or in a different way than than you know Lido or any of the other big ones
2: the, the thing you have to think about with Lido is like there's two things going on number one Lido is validating the chain number two there's steth on chain moving around in defi buying stuff swapping whatever that's generating fees for those validators so it's like it's an application phenomenon it's also like a middleware phenomenon and the thing i like i love 99% of ethereum culture and and ethereum you know influence and in people but like The things i really don't like are the uh like the a little bit of like you know you're either like blessed by the ef or you're not or you're like a pleb or you're like harmful to the protocol i don't think that's the case here at all like the ef and and lido need to kind of you know just like figure out a way to work together not that they aren't already but like these things are only going to become more pronounced as liquid staking protocols not just lido but others grow too like there are some liquid staking protocols out there with really shitty validator sets you know like three guys with different costumes on r- running the same validator like if those like those are the things which we should be we lo- looking out for not things that are actively trying to decentralize that's just my opinion i think that's a good
0: point man i mean i think you actually create a really bad incentive system if the ethereum foundation or anyone else is is asking people to basically self-limit the the, the growth of the protocol um because that's kind of saying like if you build on ethereum and you win you win too big we we may go against you
2: Right, so until we gatekeep,
0: it basically disincentivizes teams to build these value add projects on top of
2: on top of ETH. Um, Does does anybody think that having less ETH would be beneficial for fees and the underlying economics of the blockchain? No, it's like you're giving people a reason to use things and generate fees and make it secure. So, like, I don't know. Yeah, you know. Well, just to, you know, I think the reason why why people get concerned
1: is if there was something like some sort of bug in Lido and there was a catastrophic slashing event, right? Um, where an enormous part of state sort of got got vaporized, right? What what would end up happening, right? Vitalik sort of wrote about this and he used the example of if there was a some sort of slashing event on a layer two or a catastrophic, not a slashing event, but like a bug on a layer two, uh, would the chain get rolled back? And he heavily implied, no, it wouldn't get rolled back. But if something, if there was a real big problem with Lido, that I think is sort of the one Application on Ethereum, where there would definitely be a discussion about it. You know, if you roll the chain back, totally. and I think that's what people get concerned about.
2: My 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 questions are like, what are the what are the risks of that happening? Um, so far, there haven't been any slashing incidents that have been you know at scale. But like, I do think about that. Frankly, I think the slashing incidents, um, like, think about the framework for DeFi hacks. It wasn't really ever Maker. It wasn't really ever Aave or Curve. It was like the hundredth clone of those that got killed. Yeah. And if you add enough of those up, those become serious issues, like actually losing like $650 million. Just people who probably shouldn't have TVL in them, you know, with TVL in them. And so like, look at all the LSD farms that have been popping up. There's some huge ones. I saw one with $400 million in it the other day. What happens if that gets hacked is more of a question for me. So that's like relative risk. And then, you know, like alternative to, alternatives to Lido that are outside of staking, which are risky, like we'll see how restaking goes, but That's on on my like calendar for like, you know, potential catastrophic event. Like if if something does happen, probably happens with like people trying to rehypothecate Steeth in some way. Right. No, we we talked about that
1: uh, pretty ad nauseum in one of the other episodes. I don't want to go too far back down that. But yeah, the but just rounding back to, you know, sort of connecting the dots, the Uniswap discussion, the reason Lido I find so interesting is. The, the value proposition of Lido is very much based on the sense that they have dual governance and that they're permissionless, right? Like the the lower the surface area of the what they try to do and uh, how decentralized they actually are doesn't fly in the face of the product. It is additive to the product. Like if, if the community is um, assuaged that it is very decentralized and not super riskless, then yeah, that's actually good for the market share of something like Lido as opposed to I just I totally hear you, Vance. I'm not trying to you know, be argumentative for for no reason, but I just find it very hard to get behind the idea that, yeah, we can't allocate capital. So I just give it back. I just I find that sort of uninspiring, to be honest, but but that's why it sort of works with Lido, right? That's why they're so um, obsessed with the staking router and dual governance, which dual governance isn't the work still.
2: So, I, I do think like there is now this like paradigm shift where, like, before you just had the miners and you could kind of beat up on them and like push whatever soft grade upgrades and like they couldn't really do anything because they're just, you know, a kind of incompetent, b they were just like tethered to the network no matter what. But now, like, you do have real constituent sets. Like, the, the seventh largest asset in crypto is teeth. Like, you're going to have to talk to those people at some point and like hear them out if they want, you know, like, for instance, Eighty twenty, 20 you know, 80% of the ETH fees go to burn, 20% goes to stakers. I, I may have that backwards, but correct me if I'm wrong. Like, does that become 70-30 at some point? 50-50? Like, I think there's, like, a lot of interesting questions that you start to ask now that you have real stakeholders. And, uh, yeah, I, like, I don't think just, like, the old governance process of Ethereum is necessarily purpose-built for that. It's That governance process is more like the devs side push the upgrades, the miners, like, just eat it. Um, now it's now it's a lot different I
1: agree with that I agree um, what do you think just before we move on to just social consensus and I would love to poke your guys opinions about the John Schard piece that he put out but what do you think about the relative adoption of something like Steeth even versus ETH in something like a, like a LP pool or something like that I guess the idea being if you totally de-risked Lido like let's just say all the stuff that we've been talking about basically it's, uh, some smart contract bug that wasn't a concern. I guess all things being equal, you'd rather own Steath than ETH, right? Because Steeth is just yield bearing and
3: ETH isn't. So what do you think about that? Well, Only caveat I'd say is that you'd want to own wraps, wrap um yeah. most likely. Um, mm. But which is, you know, it's effectively the same thing. It just has, you know, a, a non rebasing element. But yeah, to your point, like why would you not own Rap Steeth versus ETH? There's mm-hmm. there's not really any point. Uh, well, on the same vein, maybe the one caveat would be if your ETH that you would be swapping is highly appreciated, yeah. you know, depending on your jurisdiction, there could be a taxable event. But like that that's really kind of the only argument.
2: Mm-hmm. The way I think about it is like the most active capital is Steeth. Like for one reason or the other, for the past, you know, year, I think like 6 million or 5 million have been added to Steeth. like that capital woke up it trans it you know think of like the bear market the hibernation you know whatever analogy you want to go through like it was kind of hibernating notice there was yield it swapped to Steeth, and now it's kind of a bit more awake than a lot of the dormant ETH. i think that's you know how i think about basically everything right now it's like that's the capital that's going to bootstrap thing that's the capital that's going to do all the interesting stuff it's you know it's kind of got this community going like that's how i think about it and uh You know, I just like earning yield. Like I like I hate when things are not productive and it's nice when you go to sleep and like you wake up with a little bit more. That's cool.
1: It is cool. Yeah, it it actually reminds me of uh, I think on maybe a month ago or a month or two ago, we were sort of playing out this hypothetical, you know, the state grade for other chains that were proof of stake from day one, like uh, Solana are much higher than it is for Ethereum. And I think it was you, Vance, that said, yeah, I mean, sort of the the way that you go is first you stake. That's like the very first thing that you do. And then you go do do other stuff from there. And, you know, Ethereum sort of made this transition after the merge. And now people are staking and then you've got liquid stakes. So you can go and do stuff with that. And the yield's actually pretty good. So, yeah, I sort of agree with you. I think there is some interesting experimentation being done in um, LST you know, there are stable coins that are being used to cloud. Uh, yep. it's, it's interesting. There are, uh, you know, yield bearing stables that are getting created, but it's cool.
3: And yeah, know this, this is even further in the point of experimentation is going to be why it's not a winner take all market. Cause I don't think you're going to have the long tail of LS LSDs be able to move as fast and experiment with things. And if something really hits, I, I think you'll be able to see some market share adoption. Hmm.
2: Yeah, like you have Frax doing like this weird stablecoin lending, you know, like they're adding treasuries. I saw like it's all going to be part of the same Frax ETH, I think, yield. You have Rocket Pool, which is like, you know, doing whatever they're doing. Um, I kind of see like there's going to be a long tail of like really aggressive, like we're running one validator stake a million ETH with us like and and, like that's how it blows up. Um, And they're just going to subsidize that with like a ton of tokens. So you'll probably see like the rise and fall of a lot of these LST protocols, which we we called out. I think we said that last year, but it's uh, it really is happening exactly as we drew up. Drew it up.
0: Is this a f- fair thing to say? And then we can move past Lido. That the critique. So the the main critique on Twitter right now is that Lido is becoming kind of this like staking monopoly. That that is the mm-hmm. wrong critique to make, and that the thing that people actually should be looking at is that you've got this protocol that's kind of controlled by like 50 addresses and that like the number of addresses should should go up and like should increase and that there's probably too little addresses or or you you don't see any problems across the board right now.
2: I, I see problems. I see the problems as um, we should have as many uh, people staking, self-staking as possible. We should have them paired with institutional backed node operators that, you know, can be the stopgap if, you know, something went wrong. But we should also acknowledge the reality of like, people aren't going to set up their own self-staking in the current context. They would have already done that if that was a viable option. And so the things that are going to make it easier to add more nodes, such as DVT, where, you know, if your node gets up and it crashes, you know, there's a fallback. That is a lot better of a solution and a lot more practical than, you know, everyone, you know, spin up your kernel. We're going to go self-stake. Like just doesn't, doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I agree there.
2: Um... Can we talk about, actually, before we
1: get to uh, the John Chard piece, you know, you interviewed Rune, uh, the, the founder of Maker. Could you give a sense of just kind of a high level of what the end game is? And maybe we can segue that into the die savings rate moving up.
0: Uh yeah, basically um there's five phases of the end game. Um I'll give you like the TLDR on on each phase really quickly. The first phase is this beta phase which is I guess could be summarized by building a unified brand. So in runes in runes mindset there are there's Maker uh and then there's Dai and he believes that this is limiting the future of MakerDAO because first off it's like very crypto-y brand and then there's like two separate brands. So he described creating this like almost Robin Hood like brand that's very consumer friendly, not really a crypto brand that uses the protocol of maker, uses the stable, like uses Dai, but consumers don't really understand it. And he's in and, and his mindset um, or, or not that they don't understand it, but that they, they don't really care what's happening behind the scenes. It's just like Robin Hood, like very consumer friendly. So that's the first phase is this beta beta launch focused on establishing this unified brand. The second phase is the launch of the sub DAOs. So in his mind, there are two classes of sub DAOs. There's facilitator DAOs and allocator DAOs. Um, There'll be I think it was five or six different sub DAOs that is that are each very focused on doing one specific thing Uh, and then each of those DAOs will get a token. Um, So there'll be five or six new tokens launching each one for the sub DAO. The third phase is the what he calls the governance AI launch. Um, these are AI tools for governance monitoring. Um, and in his mind, the why behind this is like to reduce the asymmetry of information. In his mind, there are about 30 people in the world who really understand what's happening with Maker. Um, but like hundreds um, no, no. people who really want to get involved with Maker. But those people, and actually I was kind of giving him some shit here, but like I do understand this. Like I tried to getting involved with Maker and there's I mean, been trying and there's just so much information and so much going on with maker and nowhere to really search for this. Um, so in his mind, like kind of what GitHub did with co- GitHub Copilot, he wants a maker Copilot that like knows all the overarching rules that the, the that maker, the maker DAO, the main protocol DAO sets, like they set the risk parameters that they set the rules, they give you all the information. It's kind of like how teams create Wikipedia pages and notion pages with like all the information. Uh, he, he wants to build an AI that has all that information. So that's phase three. three. Phase four is like governance, participation, incentivization launch, um, like voting mechanisms, locking mechanisms, a 15% exit fee, basically trying to get more people to participate in governance. And the fifth, the end game is uh, launching a new chain. So launching a He's just calling it the new chain. New chain is this blockchain that houses all the back end logic for the sub doubt all the maker doubt governance security. Uh, yeah. He, I think he described the key feature of the new chain is This like ability to use hard forks as a governance mechanism to recover from catastrophic governance disputes. I didn't fully understand that part. Um, anyways, that's, that's how been. long will
2: it take? Uh, years. <laughs> years, 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 Yeah, i mean ambitious the reason that i like maker are all the rules in the existing protocol are extremely battle hardened um they have value capture figured out i think they still do the bind burn i'm not sure if they're still doing that but they're not doing it yeah they're not doing that anymore but um they used to and i guess they could turn it back on um i like it because it's like simple and large and you can do like you know big versions of ideas with it uh I don't know how much this like subdao like I would be interested in as a user. Maybe uh, like it kind of seems like a, a DeFi summer style playbook where you just start spewing tokens of different projects. Uh, I would just need to understand more about what they're actually building um, in the near term to kind I mean,
0: of he talks a lot about DeFi the original DeFi summer. He thinks you know I made the argument that we're not going to have another like DeFi summer until there's like big bull run even like macro pump some money into the markets again. And he's like, no, he, he's like maker will kick off the next DeFi summer. Make like maker, the yield farming mechanisms we're putting into place. Um, that's, that's his belief.
2: I, I think the points in his favor are like these big LST farms that are happening. Like there's clearly like pop balls of money that are trying to go somewhere. And, and maybe he can just catch enough of that cycle to, to make it a wave that he can ride. But, um, I don't know. I feel like right now is the time for like, I think you could make maker just super successful as is honestly. Um, and I, w- I would probably focus on the simpler things, but I, you know, what do I know?
0: Yeah, I guess my problem with it. I mean, I, I really respect anyone who tries to take on anything this ambitious. Uh, my problem with it is an incredible amount of focus on governance, no focus on distribution, marketing and product. Uh, like I didn't right. really hear many conversations about the product, for example, and how you're gonna make the product better than any maker competitor. And like, I don't know.
3: That's what I that's what I would want to hear. Um what one one question, I mean, you you were a delegate or still are one. I'm not exactly sure. Status, I just got all of my how's uh, it going, buddy? How's uh, the delegations. I just, I just got five I think there were like
0: five thousand maker delegated to me. I just got all of my maker Taken away because I uh <laughs> I, I voted I voted in the wrong way voted in a way
3: that the making gods did not enjoy. You better watch. So yeah. So would would you say that participation and inertia in the governance process of makers so far has been strong? Participate. In, there's not much participation. So uh, <laughs> that was my that was generally my point. Yeah. How, how is it that you know splitting off this level of participation into five new DAOs is going to somehow increase that level of participation to the point where those DAOs will be governing aspects i
0: know what you're walking in i know yeah, yeah. I, so i know so the answer, the easy answer is like it obviously doesn't <laughs> it's right but you do that but, but the, counter, <laughs> the counter no the counter would be that like trying to participate in maker is so overwhelming because one day i'm voting on like an interest rate increase, and the next day I'm voting on like a like where they're going to take their offsite and how much money it's going to be for the offsite, and the next day I'm voting on it. So it kind of actually so you're goes, saying separation separation of concerns will will streamline the process. The that would be the argument is that like you should have people who are only thinking about like the marketing of Maker in the way that a like this is this would be the argument I think in the way that like at Blockworks we don't have. Like, if you work on marketing, like you're not also trying to sell sponsorships and like build the engineering, you know, build the research product. That would be the.
2: It just seems like the governance is all rune, honestly. Like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm I have a lot of respect for rune, but like yeah. this just feels a little bit like
3: theater, a little bit. Uh, my my like visceral reaction listening to this, and I also listened to the interview. Um, it's just one word: complicated. It's too like, so complicated.
1: It, yeah, I feel like everyone's being very polite on this. This makes no sense, guys. This doesn't make any <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. It you know, down from even I think the the cra- it gets crazier the more you actually peel back the layers of this. Like there's a plan to have sub DAOs and each sub DAO is gonna have its own token, which it can then use to farm maker. Guys, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> this
2: like devil's advocate, devil's advocate. Like we're we're talking about the Uniswap P switch and everybody being scared to turn that on. Like this is like one guy who wants like extreme agency over the direction makers heading in. Like I respect him willing to, like willing to put out new tokens. No, no, I, 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 I. So I I agree with willing to like mix it up and
3: change things. I think that this move is actually to disaggregate that control and actually disintermediate it from him because you're not going to be like someone who gets a certain number of votes share on a specific subject, it's going to be people who are elected to these DAOs who then have to make decisions on behalf of, which means that you're going to have to have, you know, an odd number of greater than three people for five different DAOs who are participating in decision-making in five different areas of Maker. Like that's a lot of people just to be like participating in this ecosystem at that level.
0: Yeah, I mean, Michael, I don't know if you picked up on this, but there were a couple times Rune was like, "Yeah," and then I tried to step away from the protocol, and then I tried, right? And then I tried to step away, and it does really seem like Rune. And then he's like, "Yeah," we've talked a couple times about like, "Yeah, I really want to go do something else, basically." And um, oh, I'm of- sure, that's his end game. He said that in passing, which yeah, I, I do think that Rune doesn't want to necessarily be ma- working on Maker full full time for the next several years. Um. And the you cons- don't have to. You, the protocol is good. Like I feel like you can just leave it. Well, that's you one of my concerns. That's, that's probably one of my biggest concerns about Endgame. Mike said it best. It's too, it's too, complicated. It's too confusing. You can't align internal people or external people. But also that ru- this is not a three-year thing. This is like a seven to ten-year thing in my mind. Um, just with everything that they're trying to build, and you you need a founder who's like locked in and. Very committed there, and Rune seems to be like in for two years, out for a year,
2: in for a year, out for two years. Like like Kane is a decent analogy here. Like he stepped away for from synthetics for like you know probably half a year, Um, more, and and yeah, probably like closer to a year, and recruited you know a whole new team of amazing guys. Like they're the whole team that's behind like this new resurgence of Perps and V two and V three, and like you know actually you know generating real returns for the protocol. Um, I think it's just like they did well because they were told to focus on one thing and do it really well and nail that. And after that, you know, like you could expand and even Kane's most recent blog post is like the team's really killing it. Um, I find that, you know, there's not enough time for like these crazy ideas. And so like, here's a few things that I'm excited about. Like it's helpful to have the core team, you know, day to day grinding towards a tangible KPI, tangible goals, you know, big market that's immediately addressable. And then Kane can kind of feel it feel free to come in you know, he's on the treasury council. Now he's doing some of the highest level governance stuff. He's doing recruiting. He's doing like ideas. Like he doesn't necessarily need to be involved every single day. Um, but there is still a role for him. And I think the role is like a combination of just like having agency and wisdom and and having, you know, the mentorship over this, this core team. But like, you know, if, if there's no one following you up the hill that you're charging up, like that's, that's usually not a great sign.
3: Well, and, and what I'd add to that is, um, a lot of the perspective that he shared in this blog post and and he talks about, you know, publicly and then Discord is, is frankly just, like, the we don't need to go that much further to get, you know, to disintermediate and dissolve these things and, like, move on and kind of, like, the protocol will be done perspective. Um, whereas it seems like this is the complete opposite approach, which is, like, we need to, you know, amplify and multiply so that we can be done with this thing.
2: I'm um, looking at my... It,
3: mike's mike's not having any of this dude i can we just like yeah i i just don't think
1: this would would any of you guys work here would would any of you be like i'm gonna full-time contribute to maker
2: no i I mean like so like one of one of the points in kane's blog post is like we have to incentivize all the new core contributors just like they were founders of the protocol right and so like you know, it doesn't mean that every five years you're going to get new core contributors and you need to keep paying them every single five years. Like it's probably like we have three or four years of work and then we're going to be done. So this is like the last class of founders. There's just like, I don't think there's a maker for those people. I don't think they would be paid that much and and be like, I don't think the vision is super credible. So I probably wouldn't honestly synthetics. I I probably would if I was like a a young kid coming out of college, just like looking for, you know, shit to do. I, I would probably work for synthetics.
1: I think one of one of the drives of bringing a people on a team is that they want to work with other a people and they want to be doing the work that they were hired to do they don't want to be worrying about all of this nut stuff that's happening around them and i do think for a project be it a crypto primitive or a company i think you want to limit the surface area that you're choosing to compete on and i think maker started with this really bold audacious vision and goal i am not sure that this is in service of that goal and I, I just, I just think it feels way too chaotic and complicated at the end of the day, but I could be totally wrong about that. So
2: I, I, think I, I, also would have been differently, would have been different probably if the token was a bit more distributed, if there was a bit more of like a, this is our thing versus, you know, this is his or my thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The, and the last thing I, I don't mean to say this to be, I, I also am in the camp of, I respect anyone that takes a big bolt swing at something, and I don't mean this as a shot at ruin at all, but I also think, you know, this is just my opinion um, looking at it from the outside. But they all they also they're raising the die savings rate as well, which um, has implicated, basically raises the cost of borrowing across other stables, um, which, which could be interesting. It actually kind of brought up a, an interesting discussion at, at Blockworks, which is, I'd be curious if you guys think there's a notion of a risk-free rate in crypto, or if it's just treasuries, um, or if there are kind of two different risk-free rates that maybe move in tandem across crypto and tradfi, what do you guys think about that?
2: I think we're going to see a bunch of risk-free rates, or like risk-free rates curve, Ave, Maker, you know, like they're all going to put out probably heavily subsidized stablecoins, and those are going to be like a tier below, like even liquidity that's zero percent funding. Yeah, yeah, you basically just clip a coupon at the start, you give it to them. There's no liquidations you don't have a funding rate
3: my take on what we've hypothesized as a potential risk-free rate in crypto is the priced hedged rate of return of staking ethereum mm. which which basically means you you know and you can do this centralized you can do this decentralized you one for one hedge with long short and it's really simple you basically hold STEETH on one end or wrap steep on one end and and you know negative eth on the other and you, you, fund, you you know, are the, whatever that rate is. Um, so you have to factor in the cost of whatever it takes to go short, but that, that I think, you know, is around four, four and a half percent right now to take, depending on where you do it. And, you know, matches up pretty decently with federal funds rate. I think it's sort of an interesting, an interesting question. Um, I could, I think you could
1: make a, like the reason why the, the die savings rate is going up is because, uh, maker has a bunch of exposure to, short-dated treasuries. You know, so there is some amount of transmission, I would say, there's like kind of a weak linkage in between the risk-free rate of treasuries like TradFi and crypto, but ultimately yield comes from growth, right? Um, you know, some entity says, "Hey, I think I'm going to be able to grow XYZ and therefore I'll take on debt and that's where the yield ultimately ends up coming from." And I I do kind of think that you know, using that from that framework, um, it kind of right. makes sense that right. there would be ties in between crypto's risk free rate and the TradFi risk free rate but it'll probably be okay. slightly different. I would say moving forward and it'll depend because I don't think crypto and the economy grow in a perfectly correlated way. I'm not sure if you read the John Charbonneau piece about roll ups and how they actually, actually, actually sort of work. <laughs> but I um, I could I could sum it up. It was a it was it was an interesting piece because I think the point Oh, can you guys hear me or you? Yeah, 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 we got you. OK, um, I think the point that he was he was trying to draw attention in sort of TLDR fashion to. There is a very important difference about where an asset is issued. And basically, if an asset is issued on natively on a chain or if it gets issued through a bridge and, you know, if you it's, it's mostly relevant to something like roll ups where you could imagine Like, let's just say, again, fast forward two years and Arbitrum or Optimism has a whole bunch of TVL and let's say it's got USDC issued on there. Well, let's say there's three billion of USDC and one and a half billion comes from, it was bridged from Ethereum. So it's using that trust minimized bridge. And then the other half of that USDC, 1.5 billion is uh, issued from, you know, natively, natively issued on the, on the roll up. And then let's say there's some sort of catastrophic uh, bug and the, the protocol, the rollup ultimately needs to get forked. The in that instance, what you can safely fork is the USDC that was issued natively on the rollup, whereas the other USDC is much more in question. So, if you've been kind of reading and saying, "Oh, is it an L two an L one?" You know, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying really the most important thing to consider is from the perspective you you really want to hold. There's a from a, from a safety and security perspective, there's a strong incentive to hold your asset on the chain that it was issued. I'd be curious just what you guys thought about that or if you've given it much thought.
3: So not, not a ton of additional thought, just other than the fact that we um, rarely keep assets on layer twos that are not natively issued there. And it's not really because we don't trust in the situation, but as fiduciaries, we, we just have to be really careful about the ecosystems that we play around in. I think this is also one of the reasons why so much TVL is still locked on ETH L1 versus the L2s, um, yeah. and that could change. Yeah, I, I know USDC just came out and said that they're going to natively issue on Arbitrum, um, <clears throat> and so that may change as you know it, it, partnerships like that really start to scale. Um, but, you know, being able to segregate something that you've bridged and something that you just, you know, own on a native issuance, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what the UX is there. Yeah.
1: I, th- I think there are, there are interesting implications for CCTP as well, which is, right. as a po- you know, that's an actual mint and burn model. And yep. Mostly what people want to use, um, there's obviously a a strong desire to use stable coins. So I'm not sure what percentage of bridge assets are ultimately stables, but a mint and burn model like CCTP could be huge for Circle, frankly.
3: I I was going to say, you know, there are a number of different cross-chain communications protocols. I know Chainlink has CCIP, obviously Circle, CCTP uh socket you know is is sort of the bridge uh connective tissue that powers a lot of the bridging so far um that that's bridging information and bridging messaging but the mint and burn of a native asset um it uh, could be the best solution that we have so far so that would that would be in reference to cctp
1: yeah thanks. think so too all right, guys. I mean, those are basically all the 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 crypto takes. We could we could end on a, a non crypto one, and uh, there was there was something that was circulating on Twitter. I think it was Sachs, uh, David Sachs, that retweeted uh, basically work from home policy with the gist of saying that work from home is failed failed experiment, and uh, need to get butts back to the office. What do you guys think about that?
2: It's funny, he's ready to call it like a year after we started the experiment. <laughs> didn't yeah. really get a lot of time to play it out. But I, I have like two minds about it. First one is like when we started framework, like we lived together. We didn't have an office. Like we were either in Michael's parents' basement or in like this small apartment in San Francisco, but like we were like working at the kitchen table, like you know, things going right, things going wrong, like you're brushing your teeth, and like your business partner comes up to you, it's like, Yeah, we gotta fix this. It's like that type of lifestyle. And uh, I think that does help. And like, we did that. We didn't just do that for like a year. We did that for like probably three and we were roommates before that. So like, you know, like, I do think there is a lot to that, especially the activation energy of starting something new. Bigger companies, I think the cat's out of the bag, honestly, like two or three days in the office, something like that, you know, a day or two at home. Like it just feels like workers, you know, whether it be more or less productive for the business are going to make that stand and sure, some of them will get fired. But like, I think there's enough slack at these companies where we'll, we'll, they we'll get rehired. Um, but yeah, I think it's startups should probably be together. I think
0: um, the, re- the reason this is so tough is because the, the Twitter takes are always black and white. And this isn't a black and white thing. It's like there are a lot of different kinds of companies like Saks being like this has failed. It's like failed failed for who i i i completely agree with Vance. if your blockworks never would have worked if mike and i were remote at the beginning blockworks today is like most of the company is remote um but if we were five people we would 100 percent be in person because you can't i don't think you can like get a company off the ground anymore it's let me say that differently it's very hard to get a. it's much harder to get a company off the ground when you're like sub 10 people if you're remote than being in person, but as a company scales, I think most companies will be like three days remote, two in person, or two remote, three in person, or yeah. I also think there's a lot of companies who hired remote during COVID, and then the majority of their employees are now remote, and so it's you. Ha- so it's, so it's like very hard to walk that back. You know, you could either right. let everyone go and start over again, but you're not going to do that. So yeah. So
3: two, two things, I, I think, you know, to your point, it is incredibly, if not completely dependent on what the type of company is, like Blockworks is very different from framework, which is very different from like a technology startup. And I think that as you're starting up, it's really important to be in person as you need to access more levels of talent. It's probably a lot easier to have some elements of the team be remote just because you can access people who are not in the same geographic location. But there are going to be elements completely, you know, within framework. For instance, where like we have investment committee meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If if you're not in in the office, like it's kind of hard to get your points across, and it's kind of hard to have a real debate and conversation. And I think there's a huge bias towards having those in person versus not. Just like you would have like major, you know, staff meetings or like major product decision discussions. Like there are elements that still require in person, and so the hybrid model, I think. You know is going to be probably the model that most employ for the foreseeable future. But to your latter point, it's going to be really interesting to see like what happens to the large corporations who started maybe in a in an in person specific mode went to work for, remotely or work mostly remotely and have to make the decision now that things are you know potentially shifting to decide how they're going to employ you know going forward and who's going to be allowed to do what what days people are going to be allowed to do what. Like, there's protests literally outside of, I saw Seattle's yeah. headquarters, yeah. Uh, you know, over work from home and forcing people to come back. And, I mean, there was a bunch of things that were tied into that protest, it seemed like. But I think that, you know, it's just going to be really, it's, it's going to be a painful process for a lot of these companies who have, like, switched back and forth. Um, I, I, I I really wonder, like, if, if we're talking about Blockworks, and not to put you guys completely on the spot, but, like, Blockworks, you know, 3x from now in terms of headcount. Is that all to be remote is that going to be really really hard to manage all remote like I, I do think that there's an element of like what becomes the best process once you hit a certain you know breakthrough size um whether that's mostly re- mostly in person or not
1: yeah i w- i will say i i don't know obviously is the is the answer right now but an- another big part of this and i think frankly one of the reasons why management has been so resistant to this is it requires managers to actually flex new muscles and say, how could we make this work in a remote environment? And we've to, to call out, we brought on a director of people recently uh, who's been, frankly, kind of a game changer for us. And I think you sort of go through these stages, right, which was all right. Everyone went remote in the pandemic and everyone said, oh, my gosh, this is totally fine. There's no change in productivity whatsoever. Then the market conditions kind of changed and it was like, wait a second, hold on, maybe we're actually not being that productive whatsoever. We need to get everyone back in the office. Then everyone realized workers really, really cared about not getting into the office. And now we're sort of going through stage four where people are trying to figure out what actually makes sense. And I will say there are some really small things that you can do that make a world of difference for making people feel bought in, be that you know, small team on sites that happen on a somewhat regular basis or more structured, you know, sort of team calls that happen on a weekly basis. There are really little things that you can do to get maybe 80 percent of what you had before. Um, And yeah, but but managers have to to learn and adapt on how to do that.
2: I'm pretty sure the correct take is not that work from home is doesn't work. Yeah, that, that comes, I feel like David Sachs probably struggles with like, he's just at like such a high off place and, you know, politics and all that stuff that like, unless someone's right in front of him, probably struggles with like information flow. Um, You know, like it, it also comes to from this like perspective, or at least what I hear is like, you know, these Gen Z's and millennials seem to work harder. It's like, yeah, that's that maybe one problem. That's like one of many, um, especially in the context. I actually, of economy. I actually think it's the opposite. And and
3: I, I think back to I, I think most people who are under the age of like 27, 28 want to be in an office setting at least most of the time, and and I think it's the people who are older than that who are you know occupied at home or have other obligations that are the ones who are you know pushing for the more work from home environment. I remember when Marissa Mayer took over Google or uh, Yahoo in like twenty twelve I think or maybe 2013. I can't remember when she took it over but there was this article and she published an internal report uh, of. Um, on average, and this is way before work from home was a normal thing. On average, people were working from home three out of five days a week. And on the days when they were working from home, they were getting to it, 2.2 hours of work done per day. Uh, and that was, that was the, the catalyst for her to say, okay, now everybody is coming back to the office and we're going to, and, and a ton of people left, And I think that's just because, you know, Yahoo in the mid 2010s was like a bunch of, you know middle managers that didn't really have a product strategy and probably weren't really incentivized to see, you know, whatever they were working on come through. But, you know, there, there is an element of like, it really depends on the company. And I agree. I think David Sachs, you know, his take is not a hundred percent correct, but I do think that there's an element of you have to have some element of in-person contact for you to build a successful
2: company. I like the age thing. I like that. Young people should be in the office. I would have been just such a miscreant if I wasn't in the office all the time. I, I think
1: it, it's, it's you know what it is it's kind of like one of those things you know how so if you have unlimited vacation policy that gets billed as something that's very yeah. employee friendly but it's actually not employee friendly at all and right. on average people use those vacation days less and there are accounting reasons for doing that I think also it's one of those things that comes across as very young employee friendly like from wherever you want the, like but there's so much formative stuff that you get being in an office your first two years in the workforce yeah. you just learn how to be a a functioning adult <laughs> somewhat you know or maybe not a fully functioning adult but from you know a, an absolute <laughs> miscreant to a you know somewhat respectable DJ. you
3: learn what not I, I, I that's yeah. what I, yeah. I I think if you're not if you're someone who's young or early in their career and you're not in the same location in the office of wherever the CEO or the management team is there's a problem there's um Michael Bloomberg has the, Michael Bloomberg's biography is
0: called Bloomberg um, and he talks about how the like basically what set him apart from everyone else that he went to college with. And I think he got an MBA like everyone else is that he stayed at the office later than anyone else. And he always got to ri- ride home in the same car uh, as like one as like the boss's 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 boss. And he got that face. So he would literally be the first into the office to say hello to that person. And then because they were always there early and then he would stay later just to get a ride home with that person. And that basically like set his career off and like, I mean, guys also like 80 years old, so obviously he thinks that like no one should work from, uh, from home. But, you know, I think there's something to be said about like just that FaceTime with people.
3: I, I literally just had this conversation with my cousin last night who is now going to be reporting directly to his company's VP of sales because he happened to be at the office while the rest of the team was out and he started working on a special project that got rolled into a new role. And now the new role is reporting to the
2: head of sales. Yeah. So, yeah. There's
0: no, it's not black and white.
2: It's not black and white. It's, yeah. also, it's also show up and there's things that you can learn, like public speaking, not being shy. Like those are all things that I had to learn. Like, you know, it, it is valuable to be in person. Even if you just You were a shy stuff. kid, man. I'm no. surprised about that. <laughs> what? At one point I was I was definitely very shy and like didn't want to do public speaking or anything like that. But um yeah, I mean you learn look at it. you on a podcast. All yeah. all
3: grown <laughs> up. All grown up.
2: No? Yeah. Show up. You learn something. Yeah. Even if your boss is terrible, then you'll learn even more. And that's the gift that keeps on giving
0: my my first year in New York. I asked my boss if I could go home for Christmas break, just like as a formality. And he says, depends. Do you want to work here in January? (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. We could do a whole podcast on Yeno's first bosses in New York. That was that was pretty great. I learned the hard way. All right, guys. Good. 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 Back.